I'd like to have Psalm 16 in front of you, and uh, verses 5 through 11, and uh, we'll look at some aspects of this. And it's a very well-known and well-loved psalm amongst believers, and in it, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is really telling us his reasons for being joyful as a believer. And uh, looking over them, there are three in particular that I want to bring to your attention this morning, reasons for his happiness and his joy in the Lord. And so to show you where we're headed, the first reason for his joy is because of what God is to him now in this life. That's the first reason. The second is due to what God will be to him when he faces death and when he enters eternity, something that he knew that he would have to do. In fact, all of us, friends, will face death and eternity. And then the third reason is the way that God will be the source of his joy forever. Beyond death, beyond the grave, in that glorious eternity which lies at the end of history when Jesus Christ returns and a new heaven and a new earth appear. And so David is speaking of this blessedness, this happiness that he has. And friends, it is a good thing, and it is a good thing to know true joy as a believer, to rejoice in God. And it is important to remind ourselves, as the, the psalmist does here, that we are richly blessed if we have God this morning. If we know him, if we are right with him and reconciled to him, we are immeasurably blessed. If we know the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in such a, a privileged position and all by the gracious kindness of our God. Now, it's important to say that this joy and happiness is not manufactured. It's not fake. It's not just in a moment. It's not just sentimentality either. You know, there are those who maybe just see churches, they go, pick me up, a, a boost for the week. Beyond that, you know, when you speak to folk, there still are those who think that, you know, religion and the idea of spirituality, well, that's a good thing, but it doesn't matter what religion you are as long as it works for you. The psalmist has got nothing to do with that type of idea. He's not being sentimental. He's not extolling the virtues of just any type of religion, anything but. In fact, in verse 4, you see the strength with which he refutes all other ways and religions. He absolutely refuses to have anything to do with other gods. He says in verse 4, Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips. He wants nothing to do with any false religions or false gods. He will not go near their practices, their offerings, their ideas. He wants no association with any worship or religion which was not concerned with the living God and his truth. In other words, he wants the real thing. He's not interested in any substitute or man-made option. He wants the reality of knowing God. Now, there are those unbelievers, sometimes they can call themselves Christians, but they don't know the Savior, and they say, oh, well, there are many ways in which we can find God. There are many different pathways, but, you know, at the end of the time, we'll all come to the same outcome. And there are some unbelievers who just deny God. 
And they think that any religion, any type of religious act is absolute rubbish. Many hate the very thought of it and say it should be eliminated from all life, public life. But a true believer says that no religion is good. The only thing that matters is the true religion of knowing God through Jesus Christ and the truth of the Scriptures. And that's where David is. Not religion, not sentimentality, not falseness, knowing God. And it is wonderful, dear friends. There is nothing like knowing God. And David's not interested in anything else. And he says that those who run after those things, you know, they will only find sorrow and emptiness and disappointment. And, you know, they'll have trouble in this life. And if not much in this life, they will certainly have troubles in the life to come. And so David's view was that all false religion was worthless, and he, he doesn't spend too much time on that. He makes it clear that that is the case, and then he comes to these great reasons why his heart can rejoice in the reality of knowing God. And so let's look at these things together. God, the joy of our heart. That's our first point this morning. This is the first reason that David brings to us, that God is the believer's heaven on earth. The true believer sees the priority of his relationship with God. Look at verses 5 to 6. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. It's incredible when you think of the one who's saying those words. Do you know David had great wealth? He had significant power. He was king over the land of Israel. He had known success in defeating his enemies on the left and on the right. For a time, none could come against him. All his enemies were overcome. We know, of course, that in the purposes of redemptive history, David was also a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. David pointing forward to the greater king, the greater king who would come and destroy all his enemies forever. And so David is a man who's got so much. He's a king, he's wealthy, he's got food and drink and servants and armies, a kingdom, prestige, honor. There was very little of this world's riches that he did not have. And yet listen to how he speaks. Oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance. He says, God is my portion, God is my cup. In other words, the Lord is all I want. This is his heart. God is all he desires in this life. Oh, dear friends, do you not see how different that is from this world? Those who are unbelievers, they want to fill their lives with anything but God. You know, how many even think of today as the Lord's day? You know, how many do you see going to God's house to worship him? How many have any thought of worshiping the Lord? You know, the people of this world know nothing of what David says, the Lord is my portion. They can't fathom it. They can't comprehend it. But the true believer knows what David is saying. And this is for those who know him, those who love him, those who are here this morning and God reigns supreme in their heart, those who have tasted the very sweetness of the love of Jesus Christ poured out in their hearts, those who know the forgiveness of sins have had their eyes open to all that God in Christ has done for them. David has seen all of that. It's a tragedy for those outside of Christ. 
got no thought of these things. They're missing out on so much. You know, they think they've got life and they don't. Here is life, John 17, 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God is the source of all our joys, all blessedness, and it comes by grace through Jesus Christ. He who knows the Lord has everything. That's true of you this morning, believer. God is your cup. God is the source, the center, the world of bliss. That is what David is saying. You say, well, what does it mean when he speaks of this inheritance or heritage? Well, in the days of David, they still had a real sense of the way that God had delivered the people out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. And uh, if you know anything about the, the narrative and the history there in the Old Testament, once they were in the promised land, Joshua then had to divide up the land to the tribes and to the people. And this was done by getting, I suppose you would call them surveyors, and they would use long ropes or stakes to mark out an area. And uh, they would give so much land to one tribe and so much land to another, and then that portion would be divided again, and it would be given to families and individuals. And so the land would literally be divided amongst the people. All their inheritance, their heritage, was given them in that way. And that's the imagery that is being used here. You know, David says, what is my inheritance? Now, it's not land. It's the Lord himself. And that's why David talks about the the lines falling to him in pleasant places. It's the same imagery. That which has been allotted to him is rich and blessed. You know, I, I don't know about you. But uh, boundaries are important, aren't they, around our properties and things like that. Sometimes it can get very heated between people and their boundaries. You can't just take someone else's land. And uh, the land belonged to the people whom it had been given to, and boundaries were laid down in the law. And David says that when God measured out his spiritual inheritance, God gave him a rich pasture. You know, when the land was divided up in those Old Testament times, you didn't know how the lines were going to fall even within the plot given to your tribe. You know, so one family might get a really good, fertile plot, rich pasture. Another might get a stony patch. One might get, you know, a plot on the the mountainside, as it were, only useful then for sheep. Another might get a, a plot near the coast where the salt really impacts the land. It'd all depend on where the lines fell. And David says here, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. God is his portion. That's a wonderful thing as he dwells upon it. You know, as we think about life, life is like that. You know, when we think about this division, you know, sometimes what one gets, another does not get. And what we get in life is all part of God's secret providence. But David knows above all else that he has the Lord, that he has that portion in the Lord. Whatever else he has or has not got, he has the very best of all. He has the choicest, the richest part to know God. And so David is saying that God is his heaven on earth. Believer, do you understand that this morning? Is that your experience? Were you able to sing those words with true meaning, to feel thy power, to hear thy voice, 
to taste thy love is all my choice. You know, we may have things, we may have money, we may have relationships, qualifications, family, friends, we may not. But would we say that God is our portion? God is the uppermost desire of our heart. If we were asked to choose between those things of this world and the Lord, would God be all that we truly wanted? You know, of course, we're thankful for the other things that God gives to us. We need to be wise stewards of them, but they are nothing compared to the heritage that we have in the Lord. Do you know, there are so many believers who struggle to give thanks. You know, they only see what they don't have or disappointments. But dear believer, if you have your eyes open this morning, you won't be focusing on the things that you may not have, but you'll be thinking of what you do have by God's sovereign grace. You have Christ. You have forgiveness. You have hope. You have joy. You have peace. You have everlasting life. God has plucked you from the pit. You've been made a child of God, a, a joint heir with Jesus. And no earthly riches can buy you those things. You know, what do the other things matter in terms of eternity? You might have been born into the richest family of the world. I'm not aware of that, but it's just an illustration. You might have been born into the richest family in the world. You might be earthly royalty. But that won't secure these things for you. And you know, when you go all riches and titles, they won't help you. But if you have God, you have heaven upon earth. You have heaven now in your soul. You have the joy of the Lord in you. And like David, you have always got reason to be glad, to be thankful. And let me be clear again, this is only for those who have trusted Jesus Christ for themselves. And so ask you know, are there some here who are still seeking life in the empty offerings of this world? In money or possessions or relationships, those things will never satisfy you. And they'll never save you. You know, you might get the odd moment of passing pleasure, but if they're all your hope, they'll let you down. You know, there are many things in this world which are fine in their place, but that place should never be replacing God. Never forget that God is the only one who can make you truly happy, who can give you true life and hope and joy and peace. You know, we have mentioned this quote many times, you know, of the early church father, Augustine, thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. That's what David is talking about. Can you say the same? You know, I know many of you can this morning, but maybe some of you cannot. You know, it's my heart's longing at the beginning of this new year that you be brought to see that nothing else matters but knowing the Lord through Jesus Christ, the only Savior. That is true life. God, our joy in this life now, knowing him. But then also David speaks about how God is the believer's hope in death. You know, God is not only the psalmist's choicest possession on earth, but God is his hope in death and in the grave. Look, if you will, at verses 9 to 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. 
So it's clear that he's thinking of the grave. Now, of course, for many of you, you'll know that these verses are more than just David's own experience. They go far beyond David to our Lord Jesus Christ. They are a words, uh, a prophecy concerning Messiah. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, when Peter stands and preaches at Pentecost, he quotes these words in reference to the Lord Jesus. His death, his resurrection from the dead. Now, just a couple of comments on these verses. If these words refer to Christ, we need to ask the question, when did Christ's soul suffer hell? You know, it says in verse 10, doesn't it? You will not leave my soul in shell. Now, it's very important, friends, that we don't go wrong here. Many do, but we don't need to be confused about this. As one explains, Christ entered into hell pains before he died, not after. It's a superstition of the Roman Catholic Church, and in fact, many Church of England people, that after Jesus died, his soul went into hell pains. There are all sorts of different variations on that theme, but without going into deep detail, that is not what the Scriptures teach. Those speculations are wrong. You know, one very simple text to help you understand that. When Jesus was about to die, he said to the dying thief, what did he say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. The soul of the Lord Jesus didn't go down into hell after death. So when did our Lord endure hell? He suffered the full extent of an eternity in hell on behalf of those for whom he died on the cross. It was on the cross that he endured hell. God did not allow him to go on and on suffering once he had finished dying for our sins. Once that work had been done, he entered into physical death. His body was placed in the grave for three days before the resurrection. God did not leave him there. He came back. And then a further question. You say, well, where was Christ in danger of seeing corruption? Verse 10, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. At what point in his experience was the Lord Jesus in danger of seeing corruption? Well, I would agree with those older writers who say that the answer is in a state of death. So when his body was placed in the bandages or cloths bound up by Joseph of Arimathea and by Nicodemus at the end of Matthew 27, they wound him up and put spices on his precious body and they placed him in the grave, which was a cave, and put a stone in front of it. And our Lord's body, as it were, was in danger of entering into corruption. That's what happens to bodies normally. As soon as they're put into the grave, they begin to decay and eventually to return to dust. But not our Lord's body. There was a miraculous presence of God with his body in the state of death, which meant that he saw no corruption. There was no decomposition or decay. His body was preserved by supernatural power, a reward of his obedience as our Savior, a reward for what he was and for having done faithfully what he had done. And that's been the position throughout, really, of those who stand on the Word of God. And there's a secondary sense in which that is true for all believers. It's not identical for us, of course. We, we don't enter into hell at all. The believer's soul enters into death, but we will never know the pain of hell. And thank God for that. 
The justice of God is satisfied the moment that we believe in the Lord and Savior. His blood is able to cleanse away all our sin, past, present, and future. His righteousness upon which we are clothed and are there, upon which we believe, it covers us in life and in death. And as soon as we die, our soul enters into glory and our body enters into the grave and our body, in our case, does decompose and return into dust. But God will recompose it in the resurrection. Our decaying bodies which lie in the grave and, and decompose, God will recompose. He will bring all those parts together and he will give us those wonderful resurrection bodies. You know, to be made like the Savior. And you know, it's so incredible. And you think of some of the awful suffering and, and deaths that are the Lord's people are about to face. And know this, that though you chop a Christian's body into a thousand pieces, though you might scatter them on every continent, in the resurrection day, God will see to it that all those pieces will come together and he will raise the dead in glory. And David knows this to be true, just like Job did. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. He knew of the resurrection of the body, just as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15. And David, knowing these things, resting as he did upon Christ who will come, knows his flesh, will rest in hope, verse 9. Friends, we're at different stages of our lives. Some feel that it won't be long before our last end. But we don't know how long or short our days may be. Only the Lord knows that. But we're all headed for eternity. And we're facing another existence beyond the grave. The unbeliever has got no hope in the face of that. But what a contrast the believer. Here is our joy. We know that because our Lord has accomplished his magnificent work of redemption upon the cross, that he has risen from the dead. We don't need to be afraid. We are certain that because Christ has done all things well, that it is a finished salvation, and we who believe have this great comfort of hope. Look at verse 9, my flesh also will rest in hope. Christ has conquered death at Calvary, and because he lives, we will live. Do you know, there are some wonderful things to think about on this. I heard one preacher ask in a message recently, what will you have on your gravestone? So if you've thought about that, what will it say? He went on to say that he wanted to have on his, I know that my Redeemer lives. And there are some other lovely statements, aren't there, that you sometimes see and find. Asleep in Jesus. That's a beautiful one. Or at home with the Lord. You know, in this life we are absent from the Lord, but present in the body in death, we shall be absent from the body and present with the Lord. But you know, one text that was brought to my attention again recently, or oh, just moves my heart, Song of Solomon 2.17, till the day break and the shadows flee away. Isn't that utterly beautiful? Glorious words of scripture, hope and comfort and assurance till the day break and the shadows flee away. That's our hope. When Christ returns, this body of ours will rise triumphant over the grave and 
deathless beyond death, on the other side of death, when that last enemy has been crushed on the heel of Christ forever. And David has got this hope. And he is inspired to put it like this. Therefore, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices. You say, what does he mean by that? Well, I would lean to agree with those who say my glory is a, another expression for soul. The word that is there, soul, has many parallels in Scripture. And uh, you find that that's the case. One commentator gives the example of the word darling. And the word darling, which is used in Psalm 22 and 35, it's used in parallel with the word soul because the darling is the most precious thing we have. And our soul is the most precious thing we have, so it deserves to be called our dialogue. That's what the, the Bible does. It's the same with this use of glory, meaning soul, and his soul is right with God, so he calls it this. His soul and his flesh rest in this hope, and they're full of joy. Why? Because God will be with him in death and in the grave, and so it is for us. If we're believers, he will deliver us from death and from all the power of the grave, and we shall never see hell. Friend, that should thrill your heart this morning. My Savior will never forsake me, unveiling his merciful face, his presence and promise almighty, redeeming his loved ones by grace, in shades of the valley's dark terror, where hell and its horror hold sway, my Jesus will reach out in power and save me by his only way. For yonder a light shines eternal, which spreads through the valley of gloom. Lord Jesus, resplendent and regal, drives fear far away from the tomb. Our God is the end of the journey. His pleasant and glorious domain, for there are the children of mercy who praise him for Calvary's pain. It is a tragedy that people remain in their hardness and will not believe this wonderful gospel, this message of grace and deliverance. And we ask, why are people so attached to this world? Is there anything in all the universe that is as important as this? There is no better news. One preacher says, I'm not best, the best preacher in the world. There are lots of people who can preach the gospel better than I can but no one can preach a better gospel than I can. And God will bless that. It's all here. The word of God telling you the believer's certain hope of glory when we enter into death and we see the Lord face to face. What a message. There's so much cause to rejoice. Not so the unbeliever. And you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, what hope do you have? What have you got that compares to the wonder of knowing God and being safe in Christ and eternity of glory to come? Why would you refuse the Savior? Is it not time at last, dear friend, to give up all your rebellion and turn from your sin and trust the Lord Jesus? Why would you embrace the emptiness and despair of this world? What gain is there in refusing to give myself and my all to such a God who has done such incredible thing for sinners. And then as we finish, not only is God our joy in this life now, not only is God our joy in knowing that he will be with us in death, but God is our heaven forever if we are believers. God is the joy of our hearts now, our hope in death, 
and our heaven in heaven forever. That's what David speaks of at the very end of the psalm. Look at verse 11. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. The path of life in your presence, fullness of joy. It's glorious. And he's talking about heaven in that final manifestation when the Lord returns. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The right hand of God. The place of honor. Now, of course, we know that our Lord is already there. He's at the right hand of the throne of God, the place of supreme honor. He is there ruling the universe. And in the day of judgment, remember, it's those on the right side who will be brought in. Those on the left will be dismissed and cast out. And so these references are those to the place of joy in heaven. And the Lord's people will be placed on the the right side, as it were. They'll be with the Savior. And God will lead us and he will show us the way home. You will show me the path of life. He shows us the path of life in the scriptures and we need it shown to us providentially day by day. Do you know, when we think of how we are such poor sinners and we think, how are we ever going to get to glory? We're so stumbling, we're so weak, it seems impossible, but no, dear friend. God in his grace will show us the way. And more than that, he will give us what we need to follow that path of life. He will get us through this dark and broken world and he will receive us into glory at last. And we believe that as did David, our God will bring us home. And you don't need to doubt that this morning. Our God will bring us home. And in your presence, he says, is fullness of joy. We don't know that fullness of joy here and now in our current condition, even though it's ours in position, we would too easily fall into the trap of making it an idol and we'd want the gift rather than the giver. We'd want the joy without the Lord. And we're still prone, aren't we, to those idols being raised in our hearts, give us a little blessing and it can easily become an idol and we forget the one who gave it. But in that day, when we will be finally perfected and glorified and sin eradicated forever. He waits till we get there and in the everlasting kingdom, when Jesus comes, then we will know. Then we will know the fullness. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You know, we have these amazing glimpses of what it will be in the scriptures. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. Friend, I can't adequately try and explain what this fullness is, but it will just be wave after wave of unspeakable joy and blessedness and unutterable gladness. To be with God, to be in God and to see God and to talk with him, to enjoy God through endless ages of eternity. That's heaven. And in Christ, it is ours. Ours secured now. But we anticipate that marvelous reality. And that's how he draws it all together at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. What can we say on such glorious things? But I know that when we are with Jesus, we will enter into the full enjoyment. Not for a thousand years, 
not for a million years. There's no time in eternity forever. Everlasting. The believer will be consumed in the glory of the Lord. How can we not be a rejoicing people this morning? And if these things don't stir your heart, I don't know what will. Do you have this hope? Friend, you can if you cast yourself on Jesus Christ. May it be that we're able to sing together forever with the Lord. Amen. So let it be.